Grace is one of those words we talk about in Christianity, either too much or too little, in my opinion. There are some groups that talk about the idea of grace as if it is some kind of security or a safety blanket that no matter what you do or what you think or what you believe or who you obey will cover you because God loves you. And it's a nice sentiment, but it's not quite the way the Bible talks about the idea of grace. And for other groups, we don't mention grace at all. All we mention is our personal obedience to what God told us to do. And if we do enough of that, then maybe we can get to heaven. Hopefully that last one doesn't sound too familiar to you. But it does to me, unfortunately. It took me quite a while of maturing and learning and growing and working with other people to be able to figure out what the idea of grace in scripture truly means for each and every one of us. And what I want to do this morning is very, very simple. Um, I'll tell you, it is somewhat difficult to preach a sermon and then the next week to come back and hear how great that sermon was in your opinion. So you guys must have liked the idea of heaven last week because everyone walked over and said, that was such a great sermon. Now, I think it's a success if I can preach this one and no one comes up to me today and says, that sermon last week was just so great. <laughs> Had that happened before, I preached my heart out. I tried to do the best I can to be informative and helpful and encouraging and give you a boost for the week. And I just hear, man, that sermon about heaven last week. I'll tell you, that one was great. This one's all right. So what I want to do is quite simple. I want to examine the idea of grace in Scripture. It's a very important Bible theme, and it falls somewhere between that safety blanket on one hand and that doesn't really exist if we just do enough good stuff, God will let us into heaven maybe. Somewhere in the middle is the idea of biblical grace. As some things often are. The balance is appropriate and, and is, uh, is the thing to look for. So first and foremost, the word grace in our English is used 154 times in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And the old saying goes something like this. I'm sure you've heard it before. If the Bible mentions something once, it must be important. But if it's mentioned 154 times, it might be significant to know what that thing is, right? It's used 134 times in the New Testament alone. So no doubt the New Testament authors thought the idea of grace was worthy of discussing and talking about, explaining and praising God for. And somewhat of a working definition many of you may be familiar with. We don't really have an exact great way to translate the Hebrew or the Aramaic or the Greek word grace for us. It's all dependent on context. But one working definition for us in the English is the idea of unmerited favor. Unmerited favor, meaning God gives us favor for something that we don't deserve. I remember very distinctly trying to explain what grace was to my five-year-old daughter. And I'll tell you what, it's not easy. <laughs> Nothing is really easy with a five-year-old daughter, I'll tell you that. But I, explaining the idea of grace is difficult. I remember one time she did something to be in trouble, 
and she knew what the consequence was. I think it was she lost her iPad or, or something like that. It was going, it wouldn't go into bed early. She never, never does it anyway. But it was something like, I'm taking something away from you. And I said, do you know what grace is? And she goes, no. And I go, well, grace is not receiving the consequence that you deserve, is how I explained it to her. And she goes, so I get to keep my iPad. <laughs> and I go, yeah, this one time, with that sweet look on your face and me wrapped around your pinky, you can keep your iPad this time. So grace in scripture is a little bit different than just us wrapped around God's pinky, right? A little bit different. The first time it's used in scripture is in Genesis chapter 6. Let's turn there together. For the first two times we're talking about grace, it's somewhat of a longer reading. So I don't want to lose you. So I would strongly recommend if you have a Bible or a Bible app, Please turn there with me so we can look at the words carefully. Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. After creation, after Adam, after Eve, after Cain, after all the descendants, we come to chapter 6 and we talk about the flood. Right? But before we get to the actual flood of Noah's day, there is some, some prep work, some stage to be set for this scene. Let's begin reading in verse 1. Now it came to pass... When men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, and that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. Thankfully, that's not going to be our text for right now. <laughs> it's a little bit more of a complicated thing than talking about grace. Let's keep reading, though, in verse 3. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive or, or work with man forever. Because he is indeed flesh, his days shall be 120 years. And there were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. Again, not our text for the morning. Verse 5, then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. That's a statement, folks. Verse 6. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, because I am sorry that I have made them. And then we move on to talk about the details of what Noah's flood was all about. Now, here's my question to you real quick before we move on to our actual topic. Was the intention of God by sending the flood upon the earth to wipe out sinful man from the face of the earth? If that was his goal, if you know the story already, it seems that his plan failed. It doesn't sound like the God that I know. So what is the point then 
of sending the waters upon the face of the earth and wiping out all creation and mankind except those that were in the ark that Noah would build. It's my firm conviction that the entire ark story or narrative or account, whatever you want to call it, is based on this very next verse. Not to destroy sin from earth or destroy all men from the earth, but to but to prove and to show this very next verse, verse 8 of Genesis chapter 6. But, in contrast to all the wickedness that mankind was doing, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. If God's plan was to just kill all mankind, he didn't succeed. If his plan was to kill all mankind and their sin, it didn't succeed. If you want proof, look at what Noah does immediately when he gets off the ark. <laughs> Falls right back into sin, right? So what was the point of the flood then? Just to start over with was just one guy and his family? I think the point was there was a great day coming in Noah's time. And the only way to make it through that great day coming for him the flood for us judgment is we have to find grace in the eyes of our lord that must be the point so grace is described first and foremost in this kind of way to show us a picture of the coming destruction of the earth and judgment if you will and the antidote for that wrath seems to be grace those two things seem to be polar opposite here in this narrative you have destruction of the earth judgment and then you have grace that saves you moving on to the next major character in which we find grace taking root we go to the man named moses and there is a lot to say about moses and we're not going to read it all you're welcome we do have a decent-sized text in front of us, and I want to work our way through to better illustrate this idea of grace. Let's go to the book of Exodus, chapter 33. Exodus 33, beginning in verse 7. I wish time permitted us to go through the backstory. There's a lot to say, but let's just jump into it. Exodus 33 and verse 7. Moses took his tent and pitched it outside the camp, far, uh, far from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of meeting, or the tent of meeting, literally. And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp. And so it was, whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle or tent, that all the people rose, and each man stood at his tent door and watched Moses until he had gone into the tabernacle. Again, let the imagery fill your mind for a moment. Please just see this with your, with your mind's eye. You have a tent outside the camp. All the people are in the camp, as you might imagine. Moses stands up, goes out of his tent. All the people rise and stand by their front doors, for lack of a better word. Moses walks to the tent of God, the tent of meeting, 
until he goes into that tabernacle, all the people are just watching and waiting. That's the imagery here thus far, yes? In verse 9, And it came to pass, when Moses entered the tabernacle, that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle. And the Lord talked with Moses. This pillar of cloud by day and like fire by night that was the Lord's presence that guided them through and to the promised land eventually would descend and go to that tent and the Lord would talk with Moses. That's the kind of communion they had. Verse 10, all the people saw the pillar of clouds standing at the tabernacle door and all the people rose and worshiped each man in his tent door. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend, which, by the way, is just wild. <laughs> Here is the creator of heaven and earth just having a conversation with Moses. Okay. Verse tw uh, 11, part B, and he would return to the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. And then Moses said to the, uh, to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you also have found grace in my sight. Therefore, now I pray, verse 13, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way, that I may know you, that I may find grace and your sight and consider that this is uh, that this nation is your people he said my presence will go with you and i will give you rest verse 15 then he said to him if your presence does not go with us do not bring us up from here because how then will it be known that your people and i have found grace in your sight except you go with us so we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. Verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, because you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. So let's pause right there and recap. You've got Moses communing and having a conversation with God Almighty in this tent. And Moses is saying, you told me I found grace in your sight and to raise up this people, a nation of Israel, as will be known later on. And you say that we're to go into a promised land, and we will be your people, and, and you will be our God. And you tell us these things, and I need to know that you're with us. Because if you're not with us, we can't do it by ourselves, which is the God's honest truth. He couldn't have. God's presence was with them. The power was the Lord's. And Moses just basically wants the reassurance, God, you're with us, right? You're going to be here. We found grace in your sight. You know us by name. We have this relationship, this communion together, right? We have this relationship. And so what God does is he proves it to him. Verse 17, the Lord says to Moses, um, verse 18 rather, and he said, Moses says, please, Show me your glory. Verse 19, he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, 
and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Verse 20, but he said, the Lord said, you cannot see my face because no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, here is a place by me. You shall stand on the rock. And so it shall be while my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock or the hollowed out part of the rock. I will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Anyone lost yet? Yeah, me too. <laughs> what I'm getting from this is the kind of dynamic that Moses as an individual, a man just like us, had with God was special, unique, and a merited relationship. He was formed by circumstance and by his life to be the exact kind of person that God needed him to be in this moment. And through his upbringing, through his struggles, through his suffering, through his shepherding, God formed Moses into the perfect mediator between God and the Israelites in Egypt. That's who Moses was. And so Moses here has this relationship with God based originally on grace, unmerited favor. And now he wants assurance. He wants to trust in God. He wants God to know that he's going to be there to, to pull him through these difficult times. And so Moses says, I want to see who you are. I'm talking to a cloud right now. I want to know who you are, my God. He goes, I can't show you my full glory. You can't see my face. But what I can do is show you all my goodness. So you help put here in the cleft of the rock. I'll cover you with my hand, and I'll walk past you. And as I remove my hand, you'll see all my goodness walk by you like a man. That's the closest I can get to reveal myself to you in a physical form. So grace thus far has been shown to Noah by allowing him the opportunity to escape judgment from the waters. We see Moses here being given grace to be the kind of mediator he needed to be for the Israelite nation to be born into the promised land. But most importantly, jumping to the New Testament now, we need to recognize that the man Jesus had grace in his life, although he didn't need it. If grace is defined as unmerited favor by us, Jesus had merited favor. So it's not quite grace, is it? Let's go to the book of Luke, chapter 2. Just a couple of verses here to drive this point home, and then we'll move forward. Noah found grace. Moses found grace. Jesus had grace. Luke, chapter 2, just down to verse 40. Very quick summary by Luke. Again, I wish we had more detail, but we don't. <laughs> the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. It's a quick summary of the entire childhood of Jesus. <laughs> But there it is. 
He grew, became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and he had the grace of God. That's the summary. Let's go over to John chapter 1. In contrast to what Matthew, Mark, and Luke all did by giving you the beginning of the gospel of the life of Jesus Christ, by beginning with usually the birth, right? John doesn't do that because John is John. I've mentioned um, my affection for John publicly thus far. He wrote as an old man, and he knew that the scope of his writing was a bit different than just talking about the life of Jesus. Instead, what John would do is he would begin with a metaphysical narrative, which is a fancy way to say a spiritual story, and then he'd tell you why that story is so important. And so we have Matthew, Mark, and Luke all beginning with either a genealogy or talking about John the Baptist or talking about Mary and Joseph. John starts with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's John chapter 1, verse 1, right? Pretty sure about it. He doesn't begin with Mary or Joseph or a genealogy or John the Baptist. He begins with Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the Bible. And saying, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. Talking about the creation of mankind, the idea of darkness and sin and light and righteousness. That's how John wrote. Just kind of blowing it up, right? And then we drop down to verse 14 of our text. John chapter 1, verse 14, talking about the Logos, talking about the Word that was with God, that was God, and His life was the light of men, and so forth and so on. Verse 14, he says, And the Word, the Logos, God, in the beginning, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Pause right there. Were you confused by the statement that Moses wanted to see the glory of God? A little bit? Well, John is saying, we've got a better view of God than Moses ever had. We weren't just hiding in the cleft of a rock being covered by his hand and get to see his back as he walks away, all his goodness. If you want to see who the glory of God is, Look unto Jesus. The Word became flesh, dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Those two in combination are very significant. I mentioned before that some have the idea that grace is this safety or security blanket that cover you, covers you no matter what. That's one part of the equation, right? The other group says, well, grace is important for sure. As long as you do enough of the good things God told us to do, we might make it to heaven. And I mentioned how the truth about grace is somewhere in the middle, right? Jesus is described by John as the word, right? But he's defined by being full of grace and truth. In John chapter 1 Verse 17 now, he describes the contrast between the personhood of Jesus and the law of Moses. 
Verse 17, because the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. Again, an echo of what Moses wanted. The only begotten Son, who's in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. If you want to see God, look to our Lord. If you want to see grace and truth, look to our Lord. The closest friends and followers of Christ also had grace from God. Let's jump forward to the book of Acts, chapter 4, and verse 33. Luke, the author, had a very succinct way of putting it, talking about the increasing of the church, the souls that were being won by the good news of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Acts, chapter 4, and verse 33. And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. Now let's go to the book of Romans, chapter 1. Two more verses for the idea of apostles, and we'll move to our last conversational piece. Romans, chapter 1. Beginning in verse 1. Paul, the author, a slave of Jesus Christ, called to be one that was sent, or an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his holy prophets and the holy scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who is born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. What an introduction to a letter. I mean, Romans is not the easiest book in the world, but it is the most profound, in my opinion. Verse 5. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you are also called of Jesus Christ. So we have Paul opening up the book of Romans by the gospel and saying, through him, through Jesus, we've received this grace. And finally, for this point, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You've got to go there, right? Everybody with me? All right. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 3. Paul writes, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. So the message I gave you, I got from somewhere else too. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, or Peter, and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep or died. Verse 7. After that, he was seen by James, and then by all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen by me also, as one born out of due time. So Christ was uh, killed, buried, resurrected, and then everybody saw him, <laughs> including Paul. Verse 9. Because I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. 
Paul still had a hang-up about who he was before his conversion. I'm just so thankful that none of us are ever hung up by who we used to be and what we used to do. <laughs> Verse 10. Here's the antidote to that particular problem, by the way. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Any flags get thrown up in your brain? I am that I am, or I am who I am. Don't say Popeye. <laughs> Ain't no spinach in this text. I am who I am, Paul says. And his grace towards me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Okay, now. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me. What was Paul's power to do his work? It wasn't how great he was, how well he wrote, how zealous he was. It wasn't any of that. He still remembered who he used to be before he was given unmerited favor by God to use that zeal for righteousness, to spread the gospel, and we're still reading his words today. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Moses found grace, and he wanted to see God. He couldn't see him fully, but we could through the personhood of Jesus Christ, the word of God. The apostles received grace, and they shared that with the world through the good news of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That's points one, two, three, and four. Y'all with me? The last one for this morning is this. If you want the ultimate revelation of God's glory, it's coming. First Peter chapter one. First Peter chapter one and verse thirteen. Peter writes, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do we have grace now if we're in Christ? Yes. Do we have unmerited favor in Christ? Yes. Do we have the fullness expression of grace? Not quite yet. Not quite yet. Peter said we should have our hope resting fully upon the grace that is to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 14, how are we to wait? As obedient children, not conforming yourself to the former lust as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conducting yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you are not bought or redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless con conduct received by tradition from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, as a lamb without blemish and without spot. If you slow down and read that text again, what you'll see Peter saying here is, we've received grace, therefore we're in Christ. In the future, 
when God makes himself known through the revelation, meaning he comes back to bring us home, finally, we're going to actually accept that grace in the fullest extent and receive forgiveness of condemnation. We have it now. We have it fully in that moment. But he also says the flip side of that is if you are waiting for that grace of God, make sure you live in such a way that you're glorifying God through your works. Again, I mentioned the, the contrast here. Some think that grace is just this safety blanket that no matter what we do, right or wrong, will cover us. It's not quite right. Nor is it if we just do enough good things to earn and work our way to prove to him that we love him and that we care about him, then maybe he'll let us in. That's not it either. Peter describes it here as that perfect balance. We receive that grace, and then we live in such a way that we show that grace to others. So that when he comes back, we look recognizable because he knows that he is holy and we will be holy as well. Grace is one of those tricky things. It's kind of like Goldilocks. Talk about it too much and it loses the special meaning behind what it truly is to be saved by God's grace and not of our works. Don't talk about it at all, then we think that it's all up to us, no matter what. If you just do enough, you'll get there. That's not it either. It's right there in that middle sweet spot. We know that Noah found grace, escaped judgment in the flood. That's the picture for us. Moses found grace, and he wanted to see God. Although he couldn't fully see him, we get to see him through the word and see who Jesus truly was. God in the flesh. God with us, Emmanuel. The apostles had that grace from Jesus, and they wrote our New Testament for us, essentially. They paved the way to open the gates of the kingdom to show us what the good news was all about. And Peter says, if we are Christians, if we are in Christ, waiting for the coming of our Messiah to bring us home eventually, we have to have that grace, and we have to live in a proper way, waiting for him in, a whole, in holiness. So how is grace described in Scripture? That's the best I can do to summarize it in the fullest extent that I can, within 25, 30 minutes. It's one of those words it's important to know what it's all about. It's important to know for our own peace of mind and salvation. But it's also important because when you go out into the world, we're going to face people that are in the same exact boat that we're in. None of us deserve salvation. None of us deserve the chance to be with our Father in heaven forever. What gives us the right to offer that relationship the grace of God. This morning, if you need the grace of God in your life, he is willing to extend it to you. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. But God is striving to have that dynamic, to have that relationship, to show us his love by giving us the chance to be in that relationship with him. If anyone has a need to respond to the grace of God this morning, Please come forward now as we stand and we sing.